Mark 2. And again he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noise that he was in the house. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, and take up thy bed, and walk? But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. And he went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom, and said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, how is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And the disciples of John and of the Pharisees used to fast, and they come and say unto him, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. No man also soweth a piece of new cloth on an old garment. Else the new piece that filled it up taketh away from the old, and the rent is made worse. And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine doth burst the bottles, and the wine is spilled, and the bottles will be marred. But new wine must be put into new bottles. And it came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, and his disciples began, as they went, to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? And he said unto them, Have ye never read what David did, when he had need and was anhungered, he and they that were with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest, and did eat the showbread, 
which is not lawful to eat, but for the priests, and gave also to them which were with him? And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Mark chapter number two. You're in Mark chapter number two. Now, it's been a while since we've been here. Just kind of took a one week break. And um, so just want to go over a few things, a few questions for all of us. Who wrote the gospel according to Mark? Who wrote the gospel according to Mark? John Mark. That's right. Uh, Was Mark an apostle? Was John Mark an apostle? Yes or no? No, he was not. What does the word apostle mean? Messenger or sent one. This is somebody who walked with Jesus and saw him. Are there apostles today? No, there are no apostles today. Not a quick or trick question there. Who was the gospel according to Mark written to? Not the Greeks, but the... The Romans, that's right. Uh, They were about uh, words like immediately, straightway, let's get to the point. What is the book of Mark about? And so what we see in Mark chapter 2, as we're going through this book and this uh, kind of narrative and story together, uh, the story of Jesus, we are learning that Jesus got into hot water real quick uh, in controversy with the religious leaders of the day. In Mark chapter 1, we see the power of Jesus. In Mark chapter 2, in the early parts, we see forgiveness and healing is found in the life of Jesus and in his name. And we'll also learn in the latter part of Mark chapter 2, as we follow the great physician and uh, learn about his power to forgive and to heal. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would guide this Bible study and that we would learn all that you have for us this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. I want to pray for pastor as well. I pray that you would just grant him strength during this time. Amen. The power of Jesus uh, teaches us that he alone has the ability to fully forgive and to fully heal. Uh, Look at verses number one through four, just a quick recap of what we went through uh, two uh, Wednesdays ago. Again, he entered into Capernaum after some days. It was noise that he was in the house. Straightway, many were gathered together insomuch there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. He preached the word unto them. And so he uh, entered in this room. There's no longer room to receive him. And Mark 128 says that after a dramatic rescue of a demon-possessed man, immediately his fame spread all abroad the region of Galilee. And at this point in his ministry, uh, his his, uh, fame really attracted crowds wherever he went. And he preached the word unto them. Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus preached, but he still emphasized the preaching ministry of Jesus as he did in Mark chapter 1, and uh, it is clear that he was avoiding the streets because uh, they had been turned into a healing campaign. Everywhere he went, people besieged him with requests for healing and the casting out of demons so that he was unable to do what he had come to do primarily, which was to preach the word. 
when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. And because of the crowded room, the friends of the paralyzed man had to lower him down through this roof. And of course, that was an original and unusual way to interrupt a sermon. And so the roof was usually accessible by means of an outside stairway. Maybe it was made of dirt or tile laid over beams, and it could be taken apart. And so the friends decided to lower this paralyzed man down to Jesus. And so when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic man was lying. And this proved the determination and faith of the friends. And they counted on Jesus healing their friend and that he would be able to walk out of the room. And we notice in verses 5 through 7 that Jesus forgave, right? He forgave the sin of the paralyzed man. And when Jesus saw their faith, uh, he decided to take action. He said in verse number 5, look at verse 5 together, uh, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Jesus knew the greatest need of this man. He, he knew that it wasn't uh, uh, really a big deal if he had two whole legs, if he used those legs uh, and walked right into hell. Uh, that would have been, been nothing. Uh, that would have been useless. And so um, he knew that sin was the real problem here. And so Jesus went right to the problem. Jesus did not mean that the paralyzed man was especially sinful or that his paralysis was caused directly by his sin. Instead, he addressed man's greatest need and the common root of all pain and suffering, which is man's sinful condition. Warren Wiersbe was a theologian uh, uh, from several years ago, and what he said uh, is very helpful. Forgiveness is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs. It meets the greatest need, it costs the greatest price, and it brings the greatest blessing and the most lasting results. Now, the scribes, his critics, they used the right kind of logic. They said, uh, oh, uh, you know, why, why doth this man speak blasphemies? That was wrong in their logic, but they, they said, who can forgive sins? They asked, who can forgive sins but God only? And they correctly believed that only God could forgive sins, and they're even correct in examining this new teacher, Jesus. Their error was in refusing to see who Jesus was, God the Son, who has the authority to forgive sins. Again and again, during the life of Christ, the same dilemma was to reappear. If he were not divine, then indeed he was a blasphemer. There could be no third way out. And verses 8 through 12, look at verse 8. Immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they still reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, why reason these things uh, in your hearts? And so he demonstrates his authority to forgive sins and his power to heal disease. He perceived in his spirit. And in a stunning moment, these scribes knew that Jesus could read their evil hearts. And he called himself, uh, in verse number 10, the Son of Man. The Son of Man. This was a divine title. Uh, found in Daniel chapter 7. And the idea is not a perfect man or an ideal man or a common man, uh, but it's talking about the coming king of glory, come to judge the world, and this man has the title, the son of man. And Jesus used this title because in his day it was a messianic title, free from political and nationalistic sentiment. Jesus could have more commonly referred to himself as king or Christ, but those titles in the ears of his audience sounded like the one who will defeat the Romans. Son of Man was Christ's favorite designation of himself, a claim to be the Messiah in terms that could not be easily attacked. And so the scribes, we know, were tense in this situation because they wanted to uh, uh, f find out if 
Jesus would demonstrate if he was really the son of man, the son of God. The paralyzed man was tense because he wondered if Jesus would really heal him. The crowd was tense because they sensed the tension of everybody else. And the owner of the house was tense because he was wondering how much it would cost to fix his roof. And the four friends were tense because they were getting tired. And the only one who was not tense was Jesus because he had perfect peace when he said, arise, take up your bed, go to your house. And the man was immediately healed. And the power of Jesus to heal and the authority to forgive sins was immediately vindicated. So imagine if Jesus had failed. Imagine if Jesus had failed. Could his ministry would have been shattered and the crowd would slowly leave the house. The scribes would smile and say, he can't heal and forgive. But Jesus did not fail and could not fail because all he needed to heal this man was his word. And this powerful uh, uh, healing power, uh, there's wonderful healing power in the word of Jesus and the promises of Jesus for those who come to him in faith. Look at verse 13, the next part of this story and where I really want to uh, just kind of highlight uh, this quickly. He went forth by the seaside. The people were saying, we never saw it on this fashion. We never saw it like this before. And so he went out, he went by the seaside, and everyone's flocking him. The multitudes resorted unto Jesus, and he taught him. Uh, he taught them. And it says, once again, it doesn't mention what he taught them about. But as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus. And Levi, commonly known as Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, was sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said to Matthew, follow me. And Matthew arose and followed him. And so here we see Levi is called to be a disciple. Jesus fulfilled the focus of his ministry. Uh, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, right? And so he was about preaching, he was about teaching. For this purpose, I have come forth. He knew how to stay focused, and us too, as Christians, we must learn how to stay focused. And so uh, Levi, commonly known as Matthew in Matthew chapter 9 and, of course, throughout the Bible, uh, he was a tax collector. He was a publican. And in that day, uh, we know that tax collectors were despised as traitors and extortioners. And the Jewish people rightly considered them traitors because they worked for the government, the Roman government, and they had the force of Roman soldiers behind them to make people pay taxes. And so they were the most visible and the most obvious collaborators with Rome. And the Jewish people uh, just really didn't like them. They rightly considered them extortioners as well because they could keep collecting and uh, they could really pocket anything they over collected. And tax collector bid, among others, for the tax collecting contract. And so the man collected taxes, paid the Romans what he promised he would, and kept the remainder. And so, therefore, there was a lot of incentive for tax collectors to overcharge and to cheat any way that they could because it was pure profit for them. Uh, Lane wrote, when a Jew entered the custom service, he was regarded as an outcast from society. He was disqualified as a judge or a witness in a court session. He was excommunicated from the temple, the synagogue, and in the eyes of the community, his disgrace extended toward his family. And so uh, understanding how almost everyone hated tax collectors is remarkable to see how Jesus loved and called Levi, how he loved and called Matthew. It was a well-placed love because Levi responded to Jesus' invitation by leaving his tax collecting business, and he followed Jesus. 
in one way, this is more of a sacrifice than some of the other disciples because Peter, James, and John, uh, they, they could go back to fishing, but it'd be hard for Levi to go back to tax collecting. In verse 15, it came to pass as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples. There were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? And Jesus here is really uh, accused of fraternizing with sinners. And most people look at this kind of party that was thrown here as kind of going away party uh, that Levi threw for his friends upon leaving the tax collecting business. Jesus sat and ate with the tax collectors and sinners, and he at, ate at the same table with these people. Uh, and this was a sign of friendship and relationship. And here lies the scandal of scandals. Jesus was the friend of sinners. Friend of sinners. And of course, the sinners knew this, and they responded to Jesus' love, and they responded to his friendship, and they were many. And so they all followed him. When the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the publicans, they objected to Jesus keeping company with these sinners. The Pharisees were a respected conservative uh, religious group, and so uh, they were often at odds with Jesus. The name Pharisee meant separated ones, and so they separated themselves from everything and everybody that they thought was unholy, and they thought everyone except themselves was separated from the love of God. Jesus said those who are well or those who are whole have no need of a physician. And Jesus' answer was both simple and profound. Jesus was the physician and is the physician of the soul. And it made sense for him to be with those who were sick with sin. Look at verse 17. They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so Jesus is the perfect doctor to heal us from our sin. He's always available. Hey, Jesus always makes a perfect diagnosis. He always provides a complete cure, and he pays the fee. And so Jesus is a total, whole, complete, and perfect. Now, we see in verse 18 some controversies about fasting and the Sabbath. The disciples of John and the Pharisees used to fast, and they come and say unto Jesus, Why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast? But thy disciples fast not. Why don't Jesus and his disciples fast? The, the Pharisees were known for fasting twice a week. And so it made sense for the disciples of John to fast because his ministry stressed repentance. And yet Jesus and his disciples did not have the same emphasis as these other spiritual men. Now, now look, God is not against fasting. God is not against fasting. He is for fasting. But fasting has its time and place in the Christian life. We don't want to be out of balance. And so these uh, Pharisees uh, were publicly known for their fasting, and they were using it as an opportunity to act holier than thou against other people. Uh, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? Look at verse 19. Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them. They shall fast in those days. By using the illustration of a wedding, Jesus drew on a powerful picture among the Jews. During the week-long wedding celebration, rabbis declared that joy was more important than observing religious rituals. But Jesus' message was bold and clear. He said, I'm not like the Pharisees. I'm not like John the Baptist. I am the Messiah 
the bridegroom to the people of God. And wherever I am, it's appropriate to have the joy we associate with weddings. And so it says in verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them and they shall fast in those days. And the days will come. The days would eventually come. And Jesus knew that his physical immediate presence would not always be with the disciples. When he was physically gone, it would be more appropriate to fast. And we see in verse 21, 22, the illustrations of the bottles and the garments and the relation to the new work of Jesus. No man soweth a piece, verse 21, of new cloth and an old garment, elsewise the uh, new piece that filleth it up taketh away from the old and the rent is made worse. The danger of trying to put something new on something old is clear in this illustration. And we know that if new wine was put in an old and brittle wineskin, it was sure to burst. Jesus' point was made clear by these examples. You can't fit new life in the old forms. And so Jesus traded fasting for feasting, sackcloth and ashes for a robe of righteousness, a spirit of heaviness, uh, for a garment of praise, mourning for joy and law for grace. Jesus came to introduce something new, not to patch up something that was old. And this is what salvation is all about. And doing this, Jesus doesn't destroy the old. He doesn't destroy the law. He fulfills the law just as an acorn is fulfilled when it grows into an oak tree. And there is a sense in which the acorn is gone. But its purpose is fulfilled in greatness. In verse 23 and 24, it came to pass as he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath, his disciples began as they went to pluck these ears of corn. There's nothing wrong with what they did but they were accused of breaking the Sabbath. The gleaning was not considered stealing according to Deuteronomy. The only issue was the day on which they did it. And so the rabbis, the Jewish teachers, they made an elaborate list of do's and don'ts relevant to the Sabbath, and this violated one of the items on their list. When the disciples began to pluck the heads of grain on the Sabbath in the eyes of the religious leaders, they were guilty of four violations of the Sabbath. Uh, against reaping, threshing, winnowing, and preparing the food. You know, the Pharisees, they were crazy, man. They, they would kill a chicken if it laid an egg on Saturday. If it laid an egg on Saturday, they were going to kill the chicken, right? And so uh, they filled Judaism with the elaborate rituals related to the Sabbath and observance of other laws, and they taught that a man could not carry something in his right hand or in his left hand across his chest or on his shoulder, but you could carry something with the back of your hand or with your foot or with your elbow or in your ear, or your hair, or the hem of your shirt, or your shoe, or your sandal. And, or on the Sabbath, you were forbidden to tie a knot, except, except that a woman, she could tie a knot in her girdle, so maybe a bucket of water, uh, uh, has to be raised from a well. Uh, you couldn't tie the rope to the bucket. You could tie it to the girdle, uh, or you could tie the girdle to the bucket, and that would work out. And so there's a little bit of craziness there. Jesus never violated God's command to observe the Sabbath or approved of his disciples violating God's command to observe the Sabbath. But he often broke man's legalistic additions to that law and sometimes seemed to deliberately break them. In referring to David's use of the holy bread in 1 Samuel 21, Jesus showed an important principle that human need is more important than religious ritual. And the Sabbath was meant to serve man and not man uh, for the Sabbath. Uh, look at verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man. Verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. And so many people are steeped in tradition, and they simply cannot accept that what God wants is mercy before sacrifice, that love to others 
is more important than rituals and Hail Mary, Mother of God, rub beads and all that. Okay? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. That will the Lord not despise. Psalm 51. Morgan wrote, any application of the Sabbath which operates to the detriment of man is out of harmony with God's purpose. And so Jesus declared that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. If he, the very Lord of the Sabbath, is not offended by his disciples' actions, then these sideline critics and backseat drivers should not have been offended either. I like what Jesus said in Matthew 22, verse 29. He said, ye do err, ye do greatly err, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. If you don't know the Bible, you don't know the power of God. Uh, and you will always err. I will always err if we try to manufacture success within ourselves, and the arm of flesh will fail us. We know that. Ye do err not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath.